great to be together. To do this, pull out your Bible. And while you're pulling out your Bible, I want to remind you that in the early weeks of the Roman study, I asked everyone in our church to make a list of five names. Do you remember this? Five names that we called my five. These are five people in your life that God has put in your path that I want you to be praying for. Okay? And I want you to pull that list out, and if you need to recreate it today, I want you to do that. So, Or if you're new to the church, you weren't with us in the early months of Romans, maybe you don't have that list. But here's the idea. Five names of people that God has put in your world. Maybe it's a roommate. Maybe it's someone you sit next to at school. Maybe it's someone at work. It's a neighbor. The person who makes your coffee every Monday morning. But I want you to start praying for each of those five, especially as we head into a season when it would make so much sense for you to begin to take that crazy, scary step of faith and say, I would love it so much if you'd come with me to church sometime. Did you know they've done all these studies and they said, if someone is invited to church by a Christian who's relatively nice, okay, there's over a 60%, that's the key part for you, okay, there's over a 60% chance they'll come to church with you. Did you know that? So get nice and then get get risky, start inviting these next few Sundays, especially as you head toward Easter, there's the times, two Good Friday services, 638, We've got three Easter morning services, 8, 10, and noon, and we're going to have a baptism that night. It's going to be an amazing weekend of ministry, and so um, I want you to make that list while, we're, while I'm preaching today. It's great. All right, pull out your Bible. I say this every Sunday. You need your Bible. Today, you really, really need your Bible, all right? Today, we go to perhaps the deepest, most profound, most powerful paragraph in the book of Romans. This week was uh, St. Patrick's Day, Thursday. And what you need to know is that in my house, St. Patrick's Day has an additional layer of meaning because it was on St. Patrick's Day 27 years ago that I got down on one knee and I asked Kathy Williams to be my bride. And in a moment of non-wisdom, she said yes to that uh, proposal. And I thought of this when I was getting ready to preach this passage. I remembered the moment when I bought the wedding ring. When I bought the ring. I was a student at Willamette. I found the diamond store that was closest to campus. Okay, I could walk there. It was called Diamond Depot. All right, guys? (laughs) So the words, he went to Jared, were never said about me. It was, he went to Diamond Depot. But anyway, I walked into Diamond Depot with my twin brother. I had never bought a diamond ring before. I had no idea what I was doing. And the guy at the Diamond Depot was a true salesman, let me tell you. And this guy started selling me on the four C's of cut, color, carrot, and clarity. And he did all the, the rigmarole. He took out a black piece of fabric. He laid it across the counter. If you bought a diamond, you've been there. Remember this piece of black fabric. I'm, you know, I'm getting to Romans. Trust me. Okay. He rolled out this black fabric and then he just started taking diamonds and he would set them against the black fabric and he would shine light on them. 
and they would just pop with color and clarity. All right. And he would hold up these diamonds and about 30 minutes into his presentation, he said, Oh, by the way, what's your budget? And I told him my budget. And then he took all those diamonds away. He went down to the bottom shelf and pulled out a metal can, pulled out a few more diamonds, but they still popped. Okay. All right. It said, what is it? A diamond is like three months of your salary. But what if you're a college kid? What is that? I don't know. But anyway, here's the point. The black canvas, the black fabric is Romans 1, 18 to Romans 3, verse 20. Where Paul says, in order for you to see the full glorious glittering power of the gospel, I've got to set it against the full scope of human brokenness, sin, depravity. It won't pop for you. You won't get it. Some of you this morning, it's not. It's not clicking and, and sparkling and causing your heart to erupt with joy. Because it needs to be set against the canvas of just how broken our world is. Paul takes two and a half chapters to say, Sin has ruined everything. Unright- the unrighteousness of human beings who, though we knew God was real because we wanted to be God ourselves, we suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. We exchanged the truth for a lie. We created our own gods, which we worshiped. And that caused a swirling sinkhole of sin and depravity. And then Paul says, chapter two, verse one, lest you think it's only people out there, the irreligious. Let me tell you something, you religious folks, you Jewish Christians, it was true of the Jews as well. All of their religious piety, all their rule keeping did not solve their unrighteousness problem, Paul says, the blackest canvas. And then Paul says, now, let me set the diamond on it. Romans 3 Verse 21. We look at it with me. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We stop for just a moment and look at the first two words of that. Verse 21, that for, those first two words, but now. Those are some sweet words, River West. Sweet, but now. This is like the pivot. This is the moment. This is the beautiful disruption of all the beautiful disruptions we're talking about. The moment when God breaks in, when God butts in, is a beautiful moment. Amen? Amen? This is it. God says, All that sin, all that death, all that condemnation, God says it doesn't matter because I'm going to have the final word. I get the final word. Not even your unrighteousness is, is so powerful that I do not get the final word. And his name is Jesus Christ, as we're about to see. 
And through Christ, God can bring justification where there should be condemnation. He can bring redemption where there should be slavery, as we're about to see. He can bring reconciliation where there's only hostility. Human unrighteousness can never obstruct God's righteousness. But now, Paul says, a sparkling diamond. He says, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I don't have to convince you that that paragraph is important. That is important. Arguably the most important paragraph in Romans. C.E.B. Cranfield said, it's like the beating heart, the center of Romans. One New Testament theologian, Leon Morris, said this is possibly the single most important paragraph ever written in human history. And you know what? I don't have a problem with that as a pastor. If someone said the most important paragraph in history was from the Bible, I'm not going to quibble. Okay? And I think this might be one of the most important paragraphs ever written. But there's a lot of big words in that paragraph. Did you notice that? Some big Bible words. You probably read it and said, propiti what? Propitiation? When's the last time you used that in a sentence? As Pastor Eric said earlier, can I get a little more propitiation in my headset here? Um, You just don't use the word propitiation. How about the word redemption? How about the word justified? You're reading that and you're probably thinking, I don't know what all these words mean. And what what I want to say to you is, relax. I'm going to take time today. I'm going to define each and every one to the best of my ability. I'm going to help you to get all the joy, all the power, all the meaning out of each one. Every one of them is precious. They're there for a reason. And yet it's easy to see, even on a cursory reading, the main theme of this passage. Did you notice the repetition of the word righteous? You see that from beginning to end, over and over, righteousness, righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. And actually, it's even more prevalent than you realize because there's another English word in your Bible that is basically the same word as the word righteousness. Anytime you see that word just or justify or justification, that is at its root, it's the same word as righteousness. If we were hearing this in the churches in Rome, we would hear the repetition. The Greek word righteousness is the word dikaiosune, and the Greek word for justify, is the, it's the Greek word dikaiomenoi, and you would hear that, and you go, okay, so to be just and to be right, it's the same concept. And the reason I'm drawing this to your attention, I want you to look now at your own Bible, starting to look at 21 in your Bible. The reason I'm making such a big deal out of this is that, it, is that I want you to see that the righteousness of God right there in verse 21, which Paul then describes in verse 22 as the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, 
that righteousness is somehow describing the justification that happens in verse 24. There's a connection. The righteousness of God is connected to the justifying that happens in verse 24 that happens to people, you see verse 23, whom Paul has already just said are completely unrighteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Unrighteousness is a universal problem for everyone. And yet, somehow, Paul says, they're made righteous. That's what that word justify means. It's just the verbal form of righteousness. You could translate this as, they're righteous by the righteousness of God. That's what justifying means. It's describing a moment where divine righteousness, the righteousness of God, is given to a sinner, even though that sinner is completely unrighteous. And somehow it's gifted to that person as they're united to Jesus Christ in faith. And can I tell you something, my friends? That's Christianity. I just described you Christianity. So if you're watching online and you're wondering, just tell me what Christianity is, I just told you. (laughs) Or if you're sitting out there going, I'm new to this thing, break it down for me. What is Christianity? I'll tell you, Christianity is this, though though we are totally unrighteous, and though God demands righteousness as his standard, we have been given somehow his righteousness as a gift by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That is amazing. That is amazing. It ought to make our hearts sing. Or perhaps you think, why are you Christians so fixated on Jesus? You know, you talk about Jesus all the time. You're always trying to push Jesus on other people. What is the big deal for you? You guys are crazy about Jesus. You're like nut jobs, all right? We are nut jobs, okay, about Jesus. Here's why. This is it. If you say, if you say, why does it always have to be about, aren't all religions essentially the same? Actually, They're not. And I'm not saying that to be mean-spirited. I'm just saying that to be honest. What sets Christianity apart is this paragraph. How is it that I could, as an unrighteous sinner, how could I stand before a holy and righteous God? There's only one way. But God has provided that way for anyone who would believe. It's not exclusive. It's scandalously inclusive, available for all by faith through Jesus Christ alone. And most importantly, perhaps you're wondering, how do I get in on this? I'm going to tell you about that at the end of the sermon. I'm going to tell you about that. So justification is the theme this morning. It comes from the courtroom. This is a law court metaphor. Think of the moment where the judge is there with the gavel. He strikes the gavel and he puts down his judgment. That's justification. You're either declared guilty or you're declared right. I've stood before a judge one time in my life. Traffic court. Okay. True confessions of an evangelical pastor. Okay, there I was, traffic court. There was the judge. I'd been pulled over. I tried to make my case. 
I tried to get off on a technicality. I think the police officer wrote down I had green eyes. They're technically hazel. So I was like, yeah, he's clearly I'm off, right? The judge strikes the gavel and he says, guilty, all right? In fact, I just raised the fine for you being such a moron. No, that didn't happen. But what if he had struck the gavel and said, righteous, I declare you right. When I knew I was wrong. That's what this text is describing. So how do we make sense of it? We need to answer three questions today. You might write these down. There's three questions you have to ask and answer in order to unpack this passage as it relates to justification. They're very simple. What is the law doing when it comes to justification? What is God doing? And what are you and I doing? What's the law doing? What's God doing? And what are you and I doing? What's the law doing? You might be surprised I asked that question, and maybe you, as I read it, you weren't asking that question, but can I tell you something? Look at verse 21. You would ask that question if you were at home with your Bible and you were just reading slowly. If you were reading inductively, we took the college kids away a couple weeks ago. Kathy and I, we taught, we taught them how to do inductive Bible study where you just make observations in the passage. If you were at home reading your Bible, you would read 21 and you would notice that Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from the law, although... The law and the prophets bear witness to it. And if you were reading that, studying it at home, you would pause, you'd pull out your journal, and you would say, why is Paul so insistent on talking about the law right now? What's he doing with the law? Why why waste precious ink on those statements? The righteousness of God is made manifest, but it's apart from the law. But I want to make sure you realize The law and the prophets bear witness to it. And you would say, why is Paul making such a big deal about this? So the law is doing something here as it relates to righteousness. On the one hand, Paul says, the righteousness that we're talking about, being justified, declared righteous, this comes apart from the law. You cannot get this from the law. The law is somehow, and by the law, Paul's talking about the Old Testament laws. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, the Torah. He's saying the law is somehow unable to create the righteousness that God requires. Paul has just said, look look back one verse at verse 20. Remember this from Marianne's fabulous sermon last Sunday? Remember how he, he what he said right before? He said, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's saying you can't can't achieve righteousness by trying to earn it through works of the law. No, the only thing the law does is it just makes you aware of your sin. You come to know your sin through the law. So the law is precious, Paul says. I'm not discounting the law. Paul loved the Old Testament, and so do we at River West. We love it. Amen? We love the Old Testament. Old Testament is, we would not understand the New Testament without the Old. But there's one thing the Old Testament cannot do. It cannot fix 
a broken heart of sin. The only thing it can do is help you understand it. I've heard it said the law is like a thermometer. It tells you what is going on there, but it's not a thermostat. It can't change the temperature. Isn't that good? The law will help you understand. Yeah, oh man, I am really, man, my sin is really deep. It's, it's, it's messy. But then it, it, it leaves you just short of the cure. Think of it like this. You can't change the substance of your heart simply by giving it laws. Any more than you can change my desire to speed by giving me traffic signs, okay? Traffic signs, speed limits, do not change my desire to speed, okay? This is why I was in traffic court, all right? I've already confessed this sin. If I see a sign that says, the law says it's 25 miles an hour, I'm gonna confess to you truly right now. In that moment, I want to go 35. I just do. It draws out in me that part of me that life is a race and there's only one winner and I'm going to be that human being, okay? And I'm just, if I see the sign, I'm gonna press on the gas. I don't know why. You know, the worst for me is those intersections like the one at Bridgeport with all the cameras and the flashing lights, okay? Do you know those? You, some of you go through those with fear and trepidation. I go through those with a really strong desire to speed. I want to go through that intersection like you go down the last little slide at Splash Mountain where you know you're going to get a picture taken of you. I want to drive through there with my hands up. Woo! And then get the picture in the mail of me rebelling against the law. Because the law, Paul says, what does the law do? All the law does is show you that you actually want to sin. Remember what Paul said in Romans 7, 7? He said, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Look at this. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me covetousness. That's a statement. I remember on our first home, Lauren was two, and we had a wood stove, and it was right in the middle of the living room, and it would get so hot. And I said to Lauren, Lauren, don't touch the wood stove. And she looked at me with the eyes of Beelzebul, okay? I'm telling you, she looked at me like, oh, now it's on. And she was like, I'm going. And she's, you know that moment when the child puts their finger out? It was like, if I had not said anything, she would not have been interested in the wood stove. This is what Paul's saying. That's what the law does. It makes you aware. But that's not all he says. He says it also, it bears witness to this righteousness that I'm talking about. Do you see that in verse 21? So the righteousness is manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What does that mean? Is Paul saying that from the very beginning, the Old Testament has been teaching justification by faith? Was the whole time, was the Old Testament saying... The only way this is ultimately going to happen is when you put your faith in a righteousness that only God can give. And the answer is, you better believe it. From the very beginning, the Old Testament was teaching this. I don't even have to leave Romans 
to show you two examples. In fact, you don't even have to leave the page you're on right now. Look down or look over one page to chapter four, okay? And then drop your eyes down to verse three. And Paul in chapter four gives us two examples in the Old Testament of justification by faith. The first one is about Abraham. Look at this, verse three. For what does the scripture say? Because I just told you that I care about the fact that the scriptures from the beginning were witnessing to justification by faith. So what do they say? Well, here's one thing they say. And then he quotes Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know what that is? That's justification. He was reckoned righteous even though he was not righteous, but he was counted righteous. Why? Because he believed in the promise of God. Or go one verse down to verse six. Here's an example from David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works, justification. And then Paul quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. From the very beginning, the Old Testament. Here's why why am I belaboring this? I've heard in other pockets of Christianity, people say the Old Testament is archaic. It's a a different God. God, There's none of the good news. There's none of the promises. There's no gospel in the Old Testament. We should just do the New Testament thing to which I say, the only way you could ever say that is if you've not actually read the Old Testament. River West, let me tell you something. You should love the Old Testament and you should read it looking for all of God's promises of grace and all of the Jesus that's dripping through all of the Old Testament. Read it like that. Good? Good? Good. There it is. That's what the law is doing. What is God doing when it comes to justification? A lot. He's doing a lot. But I'll be specific. He's doing four things. Before I say them, I'm going to have you look at your Bible. Look at verse 24. Because it starts with the word being justified. And in verses 24 and and then also verse 25, here's the four things that God is doing. He's gifting, you see it? He's gracing. And the only reason I switched the order on those is because in the Greek, gift is, comes before grace. He's gifting, he's gracing, he's liberating, and he's sacrificing. That's propitiation. He's gifting, he's gracing, he's liberating, that's redemption, and he's sacrificing. God's doing a lot. God's doing pretty much everything when it comes to my ability to stand before God and be right. God does it all. He's gifting. You see that? Being justified as a gift. It's one word in the Greek. Your Bible might say freely. I think NIV might say freely. That's pretty good. Freely is good. Let me show you one place in the New Testament that helps you understand what that word 
as a gift or freely means. It's Revelation 22, 17. I'll put it up so you can see it. Where it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life. And look at that phrase, without price. That's the exact same word as the word as a gift. Without price. When something is without price, it means it's free. You don't have to pay for it. You do not have to pay for this. Let me say this a little bit more directly to you. Brothers and sisters, stop paying for your own sin. You don't have to pay for your sin anymore. I'm going to say that one more time. Sisters and brothers, stop paying for your sin because someone already paid for it. And when you try to pay for it, when you try to punish yourself, okay, because I know, I've been there, in your head you say, I know Jesus died for my sins. I know I'm declared righteous as a gift. I know Jesus paid But by God, I'm going to help just a little bit as well. (laughs) I'm going to help a little bit because my sin's pretty bad. And I'm going to pay. I'm going to self-deprecate. I'm going to beat myself up. Have you ever woken up at 3 a.m.? And you wake up. What's usually, what's the first thing that you think or tell yourself at 3 in the morning? It's usually not, you're amazing. Go get them, tiger, right? 3 a.m. That's, it's the encouragement committee has not gathered at 3 a.m., all right? It's a different committee. I've got a word for it, but I can't say it at church. But anyway, a different committee is gathered and they're talking to you. And really, you're talking to yourself. And what you're saying is, you are a worthless piece of garbage. I cannot believe you did that 20 years ago. And I'm going to, you're going to pay. I'm going to pay me right now for that sin. And we just mope. We make Eeyore look like the happiest person on the planet, right? <laughs> and we just punish ourselves. And Jesus is on the throne of heaven with holes in his hands saying, I already paid for that. So stop paying. It's free. God did that. He's gifting. He's also gracing. See that? Now you say, well, isn't that the same thing as gift? Is, it just, is Paul being redundant? No, there's a slightly different nuance here. By his grace, you've been justified as a gift by his grace. To get the sense of the grace part, go back to Romans 4, 4 real quick and look at verse 4. I'm going to show you what Paul, why is Paul bringing grace now specifically to this? And how is it different from a gift? It's a different word in the Greek. But Romans 4, 4 will help. Now to the one who works, look at this. This is really fascinating. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And that word, gift there, is the word grace. 
So what that verse is saying is when you work, when you work for someone, your wage is not grace to you. It's something that you've earned. I don't have to convince you of this. When, you, when the paycheck comes in the mail and you open it, you don't go, look how gracious my employer has been to me. You say, they owe me this, and probably a little bit more. I never say that, okay, but maybe you say that. It's not a grace. This isn't your employer going, I'm gonna just bless you. You worked for them, and in a sense, by working for them, you've put them in your debt, and now they owe you. And Paul says, stop working. God. Stop working for this gift. Stop working for justification. It's a grace. Stop earning with, and maybe you're not even always aware of it, stop earning with the hope of putting God in your debt. Because by putting, trying to put God in your debt, whatever you receive from him after that point is no longer grace. And you cannot earn this. Stop paying for your sin. Stop working to put God in your debt. This is why, by the way, it's so important in the church to keep a really clear distinction between justification, which is a free gift of God's grace, and sanctification, where, and we're going to see this more as we go deeper in Romans, where in the sanctification part of it, where the spirit takes over, now my efforts come into play. And I do, in a sense, work. It's a different kind of working. I exert energy and effort in partnership with the Holy Spirit to become the kind of Christian that God wants me to be. But that's not just. Justification is a moment where you're declared righteousness with the righteousness of God. It's free. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't pay for your own sin. You just receive it from the generosity of God. So God's gifting, he's gracing. Look at this, he's liberating. This is what the word redemption means. You see that? So now if, you, if you're taking notes, redemption, here's what I want you to write. Redemption means to liberate at a cost. That's what redemption means. It means to buy something or someone out of bondage. In the Old Testament, uh, this would have been like the Exodus imagery where God came and, and he rescued the people out of the bondage of Egypt. They were enslaved to Pharaoh and God redeemed them. In the Old Testament, Someone would get into slavery. They would get so much debt, they would have to sell themselves as a slave. And in the Old Testament, you could redeem someone. You could purchase them, and the cost would purchase their freedom, and now they're set free. This is redemption. Remember when in Mark, when, when Mark says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, what's the word? Ransom. Good. What's a ransom? That word ransom with a payment is in this word redemption. It's the same root word. So to redeem is to ransom someone out of bondage. So for you, being declared righteous, being justified, is free. It's by God's grace. 
But that doesn't mean it didn't cost anything. It's free to you. But someone paid it all. It costs someone dearly. Right? I'll illustrate. Justification. It's free for me. My, for my sins being forgiven, free for me, grace. But someone paid. Someone pays. If you got out of here today, you walked out, and I was standing by your car with this face. And you walked up, and I had, when I parked, okay, I ran my bumper along your, the side of your car, and I just put a nice little love line right along the side of your car. And you walked out, and there's the senior pastor. This is an awkward moment at church. The senior pastor ruined, damaged my car. And you, in the goodness of your heart, you said, it's no problem. I forgive you right? Which is what you would do, right? Because we have to talk later. No, okay, okay. If you said, I forgive you, no problem. In fact, you're totally right. It's not a big deal. That'd be free for me, but it would cost you something. Cost you the full damage. Even if you said, I forgive you, but you're going to see it in my giving, all right? Now that's cost the church something, which you would never do that, okay? The point is, forgiveness, justification, doesn't mean that someone hasn't paid dearly. It always costs something. It's just that God, in his grace, took the full cost from me, and he placed it somewhere else. And that's the word propitiation. He's gifting, he's gracing, he's liberating, and now look at this. He's sacrificing. Propitiation. Whom God, look at that, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, I'm gonna acknowledge that this word propitiation is controversial. Uh, There have been lots of debates about how to translate the Greek word illustarian. Um, Usually, to be totally honest with you, those debates are around the fact that a lot of people do not like what is probably the plainest meaning of this Greek word. And the plainest meaning of that word To propitiate means to appease God's wrath. Means someone takes the full payment, the full punishment, the full condemnation for sin. And that kind of a concept in our culture does not land well on our modern sensibilities, right? Because people say, well, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of a... God of, a God who needs to have his wrath appeased? What? I don't like that. So you'll see different kinds of translations. Maybe some of you in your Bible, you have the word uh, sacrifice of atonement. That's the NIV. That's pretty good. The problem is the word really is this word. Why I like ESV is I like it when a Bible shows me a word, even if I've never heard the word, where I have to go, let me get the actual definition of this word. That's actually good. Some Bible translations use the word expiation, which is nowhere near what this word means because it on, that only means kind of wiping away 
the stain of sin, expiation. But this word's doing something different. And let me prove, Paul proves it in the very next phrase. So I'm always trying to teach you to let your Bible do a lot of the work for you. So look, he says, God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now look at this. This was to show God's righteousness. It was? What was to show God's righteousness? God putting forward Christ as the propitiation by his blood had a purpose. And the purpose was to show God's righteousness. Why? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Folks, this is a justice issue. Justice has not been fully meted out yet. Even throughout the whole Old Testament, with every sacrifice for sin, the Bible was always saying, okay, but that's not really dealing with the sin issue. All those sacrifices, they're not covering it. All they're doing is they're pointing forward, pointing forward to the real sacrifice that we actually need when the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, pays for sin. That will be the moment when God will stop. In the present time, do you see that? In the present time, when God actually completes his righteousness. So, there's a justice problem. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sin had not been paid for. It had been passed over, but not paid for. And at the cross, it was paid for. Let me show you one other place. I'll put up Romans. This, this seals the deal for me. Romans 8.3 Look at this. For what God has done, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Look at this. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, look at this phrase. He, that's God, condemned sin in the flesh. I want you to just look at that phrase. Whose sin did God condemn? I saw some of you. Our, you can talk back to me at this point. <laughs> Whose sin did God condemn? Christ's? No, he condemned my sin. In whose flesh was it condemned? Christ's. Wait a minute. What? At the cross, God condemned sin. No, God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. How does that work? I don't know, but I know this. It's the only way that I can stand before a holy God because Jesus took the penalty of my sin and I'm set free. And so my heart sings. And I hope yours does too. No more of this, I don't believe in a God of wrath. A God of wrath is not a God of love. Can I tell you something, friends? That does not make sense if you've really suffered. 
Tell that to people who have suffered horrible injustice and then tell them about a God who just sort of passes over it, but doesn't actually ever really judge. For if God had just passed over sin, well, we'll just kind of let it go. You know, we got off course here. Everybody get back in line. You know what would happen? God's righteous character would be radically compromised because he's a judge. He's a right judge. But here's the thing. The cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment. It happens at the cross. So what is God doing? A lot. Hallelujah. What are you doing? Just one little thing. And we're just about to do it here. In fact, I'm going to invite the worship team to come. As I share this last thing. What are you doing? Here's what you're doing. You're just trusting in Christ. And in Christ alone. You're just trusting in Jesus. And even that, it's not really about what you're doing. So think about this. When I say, here's what you're doing, you're trusting in Christ. Don't focus too much on the trust part. Focus on the Christ part. (laughs) Right? Because it's the object of your faith that's the difference maker, not not your faith. In fact, you you could have the weakest faith in the world, but if it's placed in the right thing, it'll... It'll change your world, right? It's not about my faith. As Tim Keller said, I could have all the faith in the world that feathers strapped to my arms will keep me flying if I jumped off the top of a building, right? I could be the most faith-filled person in the world, but the object of my faith is gonna let me down, right? Or with a tiny shred of faith, I could get on a 747 with an anxious heart and that, that 747 is almost certainly going to fulfill its promise. That's what we're talking about. Trust Christ. He'll deliver. And when you do it, the, the, the focus is specific. It's his death and his resurrection. Which is what we're about to celebrate right now. So there's two things that we're going to do here to close the time. We're going to go to the Lord's table And I want you to go to the table this morning with two little reminders clanging around in your head. First is stop paying for your sin. Stop paying. Stop working for God's righteousness. Receive it as a gift. Jesus paid paid it all. His blood was shed. I don't know where you're at, but I have a feeling that for some you're realizing, I'm sitting here and I'm realizing I'm religious, but I don't know that I've put my faith in Jesus Christ for my sin. I'm not totally sure I've taken my eyes off my religion and put my eyes on the Savior who paid for my sin. Will you do that this morning as you go to the table? In fact, there's going to be prayer teams up here at the end of the service. 
And that'd be a moment for you to come. We'll have a ministry time where you can come and pray with someone and, and give your heart to Jesus. I'm gonna pray for you right now. Will you bow your heads with me, Lord? How we thank you so much for the glittering diamond that Paul has just set on the black cloth. The word declared righteous in your sight. A divine righteousness that we've been given as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ, who's redeemed us, who's paid for our sin. And so we say, thank you, Lord God. We love you, we worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.